Tonight, I've spoken to the Leader of the Opposition and the incoming Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and I've congratulated him on his election victory this evening. Below the Line, Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. The Australian people have voted for change. I am humbled by this victory and I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. Welcome to Below the Line, a 2022 federal election podcast special. And from the polls to the party spin to the policies, we've been having a look free of party media and populist lines at the 2022 election. It's brought to you by La Trobe University together with The Conversation website. I'm John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne. And I'm joined by political scientists, Professors Annie Kagawa, Professor of Parties resplendent in her merchandise here at La Trobe University this morning. Annika, great to see you. Thank you very much. Professor Simon Jackman, Professor of Polls, and thank you very much. They're both from the University of Sydney and Associate Professor Andrea Carson, Professor of Press, who is here on her home campus to host us together with a sausage sizzle, which has attracted a surprising number of students. Well, no, a free sausage sizzle. It's not surprising that it attracts students. We've been having fun during the campaign, unpacking everything that's gone on, and now this is our chance to sit back and, first of all, assess what happened and also have a look at what might happen next. I think it's fair to say it is a turning point in Australian politics and the political landscape, Annika, will never be the same again. Well, I think we'll never be the same again is a, is a pretty big call, but certainly for the next uh, three years, I think you're absolutely right. A lot has happened in this campaign and a lot more is happening as the result is made clearer and clearer um, over the, the coming days. But we've seen a, um, a record number of independents elected to the lower house and you know we thought that this was likely that we'd get a few but certainly the, the the overall number that we've uh, that we've seen has been quite remarkable. So you don't I mean, think this is a permanent shift in the tectonic plates of politics? You think this might be a passing phase? Well, I, I look. I think it's I think it's a good start towards a permanent shift, and I say that with some hesitancy because it really depends what the independents do with their positions over the next um, three years and how the sort of the balance plays out both in the House of Representatives and the and the Senate. But certainly in terms of voting and the shift away from the major parties, we've had this shift for the last 30 years. Um, but this is the first point in time where we've seen this grouping of individuals in this size um, be elected to the lower house. So there is what I would say is a real fragmentation of our party system. Simon, do you think this is a permanent shift or just a passing phase? I don't know if it's permanent, John. There's an awful lot of resilience to two-party politics. The institutional incentives for um, two-party government uh, in Westminster-style systems is immensely strong. And uh, I think it would be unwise to say that those teal seats are now forever teal. I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm not going that far. There are people who are doing it. I certainly think, as Helen Haynes has shown, Andrew Wilkie, who keeps being overlooked, but really, you know, how many terms has he now served? I can't remember. But you can entrench an independent. We saw it with Ted Mack too. My question is more whether the, the grip of the two parties is default, if that might be over. There, I'm more inclined to agree with you. Um, I think 
this election represents a sort of a new high in what has been a trend over some decades of away from the major parties. And, and politics is um, very nonlinear. Um, you get these steady uh, secular trends in voter sentiment, and then you'll have the breakthrough election where that'll convert into seats. And we've, and we've seen that uh, this cycle. Um, I, I nonetheless stay, you know, Josh Frydenberg is an enormously ambitious individual. The Liberal Party represents capital. Um, capital is not going away in Australia. Um, the, um, there's been a, uh, it's a breakthrough. We finally got a parliament that is um, in favour of aggressive action on climate. And I think that's the big change, John. Um, in, the, in the policy configuration. And where does that place us, to go to Annika's point, where does that place us three years from now? What does the political slash policy landscape look like? And I think that, understanding that, the role of this incredibly important issue that's been what this election is about in, in large measure, where are we on that three years from now, I think is, is how I would, I'd need to know that before I can answer your question. Okay, the other big shift is in media, and I'll come to Andrea Carson in just a second, but still with Annika and Simon on the big shifts, Ironically, it was the fires and floods that drove much of this. The same political arguments were being held the last three or four elections. This time, though, there was all the evidence you could ever need that urgent action had to happen and now. It wasn't theoretical anymore. So in a way, it's not so much the politicians, it's nature that forced this to happen. Well, I mean... Climate 200 was around in the 2019 election. With little impact. And they, yeah, they donated to a few independent MPs. But you're absolutely right that a lot has happened in the three years. Whether or not that catching up happened on the part of the voters or on the part of the the parties. Look at Brisbane. I, mean, uh, I, I, I think to say it was the environment what done it, um, don't underestimate the fact that the Liberal National Coalition found themselves unable to adjust in yep. response to, to that reality. Yep. Morrison crabbed walked the coalition towards a 2030 target after Biden was elected in the US, by the way, and, and Australia's international position on that was becoming increasingly untenable. But they made a choice on how to campaign in the wake of what we all saw and experienced uh, in Australia. And gave everybody the shit. So Andrea Carson, the other huge shift in your area, of course, has been that despite the most vigorous advocacy, not journalism, advocacy from in particular the Murdoch media, sky after dark, all of this stuff, zero impact, zero impact, you could argue. So is this the end of the Australian electorate in a way being kind of pushed around by the Murdoch media? Well, the Murdoch media tried very hard, John. It was a very vitriolic coverage of the Labor Party and Anthony Albanese, especially on those East Coast tabloids. Did they have zero impact? It's really hard for us to measure that. They might have uh, perhaps seen less of a result for Labor than we would have seen if there wasn't that campaign. That's you mean the swings would have been even bigger? It Perhaps it's really hard for us to be able to measure that. They were certainly trying. 
Um, the, the other thing that is a big shift, though, is the campaign, and we've talked about this throughout the podcast, has really moved to the digital media space. And we're seeing that uh, many Australians and many candidates are using the digital space to get their political information and to disseminate their messages. And when we look at the overall topics in the mainstream media over the course of this campaign compared to the main the topics that dominated social media, we're seeing quite a departure. So to give you a key example, women featured really highly on social media, nothing in the top 10 in mainstream media. And now we're seeing mainstream media rush to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, this uh, movement of women and the independence. And well, that was there all throughout the campaign. Why have they ignored that? Social media didn't ignore that no. and there's a disconnect here between what voters wanted to hear about and Annika and Simon have already spoken about the environment as being a key issue that voters wanted to speak about but the mainstream media uh, parties didn't talk about that the independents did and the mainstream media didn't talk about how disaffected women were feeling and all off the back of the march for justice the way Brittany Higgins was treated uh, Grace Tame becoming Australia of the Year this movement's been going for some time and it was largely ignored. Look at the grassroots mobilisation of volunteers yeah, for a lot of the teal independents yeah, yeah, in Sydney, yeah. Perth as well as Melbourne, unprecedented in Australian politics. That didn't come through mainstream media. That came through social media and community and, links. And, and but then I want to throw in another curveball here. Darren Chester, National Parties in Gippsland in Victoria, increased his majority. Jason Wood, Latrobe, the Latrobe Valley, in very depressed outer suburban, but then extending into rural Gippsland in Victoria, increased his vote. Liberal Party increased his vote. Adjoining seats, the vote collapsed. So there are examples where Liberals increased their vote Mm -hmm. because they were strong local candidates. Mm -hmm. They weren't being trumpeted on the front page of the Australian or the Daily Telegraph or any of these sorts of instruments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They connected to their communities in the same way as Allegra Spender did or Cheney in Perth and so on. This is a grassroots can, rebellion. Can I pick up on that point just to say how important local candidates are, which is overlooked in mainstream media coverage, which focuses so heavily on the horse race, which is inherited really from American coverage. Uh, but this time we saw that on steroids, just the intense focus on Albanese and Morrison and neglecting that Voters vote for a whole range of reasons. They vote on issues, as we've just talked about with climate change. They vote because they like their local candidate and local candidates that do strong campaigns get rewarded. We might be seeing that in Bass and Braddon in Tasmania. Uh, And they also vote because of parties rather than the leaders. So I should clarify, even though this is our last broadcast, our last podcast, we're going to do it in two parts. So when people are listening to us at some point in the next few days, we're going to give you two bites of the final podcast, Cherry, because there's Sausage just... John. <laughs> there's more than we can bulldoze into one episode. Bulldoze. So in this first Bingo. of two parts, <laughs> we're, we're going to look at the campaign, but then in the second half, we're separately going to look at what it means for the future. So this first episode, we're just concentrating on the campaign looking back at the past. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. Our election podcast, Below the Line, is wrapping up soon, but The Conversation's evidence-based journalism never stops. Every day, we publish high-quality news and analysis written by academic experts and edited by journalists. 
To become a subscriber, click the Get Newsletter button on our website or follow the link in the show notes. Many thanks for your support. Now, back to the podcast. Still with you, Carso, and this causes me great distress and pain to say it, but it has to be said. Although the ABC rated very well on Saturday night with Anthony Green and all the rest of it, I think their general coverage in this campaign has been below standard, and I actually think there's some real issues here. The government boycotted the ABC, no debate, no access, all of this sort of stuff. I think there's real issues here about Australia's media. We've talked just briefly, but enough about the Murdoch media, who are going to be staring into an abyss with a government that's not going to have them on the drip. But I also think there's problems for the ABC. What do you think the problems are? I can identify perhaps two. One is that um, journalists have increasingly become brands under their own name and the journalist gets injected into the story and I think that can be problematic. The other problem is a chill effect where there's a self-censorship that goes on that isn't talked about in newsrooms but it's just assumed that let's not cause trouble for ourselves, we won't report on that. Mark McGowan, the Premier of Western Australia, had a spray at a press conference yesterday at the Canberra Press Gallery and said he thought they were unprofessional and their behaviour was outrageous and he, I think, was pretty close to what I felt too. Uh, Also in Perth, the long-standing radio presenter Jeff Hutchison, who's been on air as a mornings presenter and then now on a drive presenter, said he thinks some of his colleagues have suffered from Stockholm Syndrome. Well, I think this is a central argument that's come from media academic from Deakin University, Matthew um, Rickardson, who's just put a book out about the ABC, uh, saying that they've become too cautious in their reporting. Barry Cassidy's also been on Twitter yep. and been quite critical about ABC coverage during this election. But I think it's broader than the ABC, John. I think the public's quite dismayed with the way the media has covered this campaign because it hasn't been speaking to the issues that they want to hear about. Well, we'll see whether or not that, in fact, plays out in future. Simon, Annika, do either of you want to say anything about the media, even though it's not your specific area? Let me offer um, two metaphors from the United States. Um, Our media is covering elections like they are presidential contests. And this election was much more like a U.S. congressional race where you've got, in the U.S., 435 different campaigns running with weak party themes unifying, weaker than Australia typically, but not non-existent by any stretch. What your, your stats you just quoted about what happened in Latrobe Valley, you know, some of these contra to tr- national trend swings... The, the rise of so many independent candidates, um, the way the Brisbane seats have caught us all by surprise, as confounding as it is for analysts, how the hell is a put-upon national broadcaster meant to cover the breadth of that? Now, I'd say it's their charge to do exactly that, and number one. They, and they should be in touch with their local community. That's their but, charge. But number two, um, the budgets you require to have that sort of reportage um, being able to give the national audience some sort of insight over over all that variation, all that storm and fury and froth and bubble that's happening out there in, in electorate after electorate. That's a really profound challenge for a news media that has got a, a fairly cookie-cutter template of what covering... Uh, an Australian federal election campaign well, looks remember, like. Remember, Simon, we talked about this right at the beginning with the start of the campaign, that drive down um, the boulevard in Canberra and the over-the-top Oh, no, the, the aeroplane, the plane's taken off. 
The plane's in the air. The plane's landed. They're coming. They're putting some steps up near the plane door. That's cookie cutter. We've been having that sort of coverage since 1990, and it's time for a rethink. That's okay. That's the first. That's the first 15 minutes of the campaign. That that it is what it is. It's it's what comes for the next six weeks. I think. But I think um, it. I think Carso's right. I agree with her. It characterises how superficial a lot of the thinking was in the control rooms and the editorial rooms when they're instructing the troops. Here's what we want you to go out and capture, film, record and report on. It was rubbish. Quite frankly, it was rubbish. Any journalist spending time reporting about an aeroplane taking off and an aeroplane landing and seats being rolled up, a cameraman who's being told to make that your day's work, that is a waste of time and money. And we can't ignore the gotcha moments, can we? That's also part of the cookie cutter of we have to get something extraordinary rather than ordinary, so let's catch out the politicians um, doing a stuff up during the campaign. But that was potentially the story of the campaign. I I have a tiny bit of sympathy. When Albo stumbles out of the blocks... There's your story. It's an I, issue. I Is he going to do it again? I agree with and, you. And if he does, there goes the election, and that's what the election will be some about. Some of the other questions subsequent up. to that were bordering on the absurd. I do agree that the opposition leader should know a key economic marker, such as what the unemployment rate is, but there is a bit of a game that goes on, and I think that's what Mark McGowan was speaking to about, a discourteous press that's looking to catch out the politicians rather than serve their audiences. And they're meant to be serving their audiences by giving them information so they can make an informed choice during the campaign. And not only serving the audiences. I mean, if we think about the relationship between the media and parties, if the media are acting in a way that's discrediting themselves, that is only playing into the hands of the parties because then the parties can speak directly to the people. And that's what they want to do. And in a presidentialised campaign, that's the tactic they're going to go for. So it actually does serve Albo, it serves ScoMo, to say you guys are acting like a pack of idiots... Um, I, we can't be trusted We're to We're going to stick with the socials. We'll stick with the socials. We'll mm. talk to the people directly. And they're shooting themselves in the foot. So let's move on a little bit. Some remarkable absences in the next parliament, but mm. the big picture, Pauline Hanson, Clive Palmer, before we get to individual personalities party-wise, they were thought, I mean, not that long ago, people thought Pauline Hanson was an unstoppable force. And last election, Clive Palmer spent a lot of money with great effect. This time, what do we make of it? Is populism dead in Australia? <laughs> I don't know. Big about call. That's, well, that's the question that I'm going to ask because I think wow. a lot of people were expecting Hanson to do really well, Palmer to do really well on the back of his sort of Freedom March and, and Freedom Crusader campaign. But what we've ended up with is a, a pretty damn progressive result in the yeah. Parliament. And, Spending. And, and the other sense of the word populism, though, populism is anti-system at root. It, it's parties and the institutions... The Teal movement is not that by any stretch of the imagination. And I wonder if COVID and climate, we need, you know, and Albanese said this, you know, it's making government work for people, whereas the coalition was about, you know, trying to get government off your back. I think really overcooking um, the Australian electorates (laughs) um, dislike a government. I think Australians like government. They just want it to be better and do the right thing. And uh, so you may be right. Uh, the, the, the anti-system affect that so powerfully motivates Hanson and Palmer. I think there's a really optimistic take on this, and that is um, money politics in Australia. We don't have great regulation or laws around it. And yet Clive Palmer spent 
it looks like over $100 million. He got 4% of the, the vote, vote yeah. marginally higher than uh, 2019, but lower than 2016. No seats in the upper house, no seats in the lower house. He, he may get one senator in Victoria. All right, I'll stand Believe corrected it or if not, that happens. in Victoria of all places, but that's, but, you know. But, wow. it, you know, money can't buy you into the parliament and we should be reassured by that to Absolutely. a certain degree. We, we, we can be, but I suppose if you look at it from another perspective, how much did Climate 200 spend? on this campaign. Not $100 million. Well, no. no, not quite 100 but money still, I suppose money may not talk, but money is needed to resource campaigns. Yes, and, and you need, if you want to try and influence where the nation's going, you need to spend money in order to, to capture that yeah, sentiment. So but you can't create that sentiment from nothing. There were huge numbers of people at some of those protests, the so-called freedom rallies, but they weren't in any way, their energy wasn't directed, whereas smaller numbers of people their energy was directed by the climate protesters and look what they achieved. So, in fact, if Clive Palmer wants to spend his money better, what he should do is go and buy someone who worked for Simon Holmes at court and get them to come and tell him how to spend his money to more effect because he obviously didn't get much Good bang for his buck. That. Good luck with that, Clive. Yes, we should declare there. I'm having a go at you, aren't I, Simon? Because Simon did do some work. You gave some number-crunching assistance. I did. To the climate people. I so did. let's go on. We, we have got another episode where we're going to look at the future. So let's just keep in this episode looking at the campaign in the past. The most memorable moment? Adam Bant. Google it, mate. <laughs> I mean, the Greens did particularly well. We really should pause yeah, and spend know, a we, minute or two. We talked about independence. But the, the, over many elections, the Greens have promised much, delivered little. I'm not in any way belittling the efforts of Richard Di Natale or any of his predecessors, but this is the election where their promise and their potential was finally realised. What does that mean? Um, mea culpa for me. I grew up in Brisbane. I did not see Ryan and Griffith coming, um, perhaps should have. Um, perhaps I had my Climate 200 blinkers on and we were looking at the seats where Climate 200 was active and Climate 200 was not active in, in, um, in those southern inner Brisbane seats, uh, Ryan and Griffith. The writing had been on the wall in state and local elections up there. Green candidates have done very, very well uh, in those elections. But the idea that Queensland is where... They're going to have two, maybe three. I don't think they'll get Brisbane in the end. I think there will be a Labor seat at the end. But two House of Rep seats from, like, it's the, the country, it's, a, it's emblematic of how fast and how far the country has come on this. And as I was saying earlier, John, it can be the steady accretion. 8% does you no good. 10% does you no good. But 50, and then you hit 22. And in a preferential voting system, all of a sudden, pop. Everything starts coming your way. But is this, again, is this a permanent shift, do you think, I mean, the, going back to where we the, started? The Greens it? have been chipping away at this for, for quite some time. Um, and I do think, yes, what is permanent about it is that we've seen a shift away from the major parties, whether that is longer term occupied continuously by the Greens. I mean, the Greens took over from the Democrats or sure. whether this sort of teal force... I go back as far as the Australia Party. That's how old <laughs> I am. But, but is the, again, going back to where we were before about the teals, is this permanent or is this going to be... We'll have to see what they do with it, won't we, before well, we can answer that I question. Absolutely. I think that's a great segue into our, our, next, um, our next episode because a lot will hinge on the next three years and what they're able to achieve and what relevance they're able to maintain after they've achieved the, the policy, you know, um, the policy uh, promises that they were advocating at the election. Isn't Queensland a tale of two states? On one hand, we've got this Greens movement that's taking off there down in the south. But uh, when you look at the Liberal Party, 
it's still a huge swathe of Liberal members of Parliament are now from Queensland, mm-hmm. which shows that it's still got a real conservative bent going on as well. So um, I guess I throw that to you, Simon, understanding Queensland better than most of us have yeah, grown well, it's up a, there. It's the strangest state in the country politically for the reasons you just articulated. Most, as we all are taught as undergraduates, and happily it's remained true since we were undergraduates, Queensland is the most decentralised state uh, in, in the Federation. It should be two states, really, shouldn't it? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but, but, um, but certainly city versus rural. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and let's not get carried away. We're talking about um, south of the Brisbane River um, in, in leafy suburbs that all had the daylights flooded out of them, not once but twice in, in, in the last year or so. Um, and that um, uh, people from the People's Republic of Newtown or the People's Republic of Fitzroy uh, would feel very much at home uh, in, in West End, uh, Brisbane. And, uh, it's a, it's, but it is a pocket. Um, but as I said earlier, have reached enough critical mass to take advantage of things like preferential voting to translate that finally into seats in the national parliament. So we'll see in the next episode what that might mean. And, you know, almost certainly Peter Dutton is going to be the leader of the Parliamentary Liberal Party. The Nats will have their party room meeting. They're going to... They have a standard procedure where the leadership is always spilled afterwards. So they didn't lose any seats. So the likelihood is that they're going to keep Barnaby Joyce and continue exactly as they were before, in which case who knows what that means for their constituents and what it means for the coalition agreement as well. Some speculation as we're recording this podcast that there might be a disagreement to the point where the coalition ends, the coalition agreement. Any strong views on that, Simon? No. Wow. Wow. All I'd point out um, is that um, the, the seat share for, for the Libs, Annika and I were doing the sums on this this morning. In the um, combined party room? Yeah. Um, the coalition is now at um, 58 leads right now. So let's say they get to 58 out of 151 seats. And that's 38% of the parliament. Um, the and Lib- of the 58, there's, what, 16, I think, Nats isn't there, including senators. So, yeah, I don't so, know that. So they might pick the up another way. Senate seat, 16. So they're a third possibly. of the coalition instead of a quarter of the coalition. But the point being, uh, the coalition at less than 40% of the parliament, of the House of Reps, yeah. that hasn't been the case since Menzies founded the party yep. in 1949. Yep. You've got to go back to 1943 to find an election... And that Annika dug that one out this morning. You've got to go back to 1943 to find an election where the conservative forces of Australian politics were so poorly represented in the national parliament. 1943, John Curtin, World War II and Labor got 50% of the primary vote nationwide. And, and, the, and, and perhaps the one parallel with today, the, the conservative forces of Australian politics were a rabble. In, in 1943. Next episode, we'll look at what it means, the transition to government for the Labor Party, the wreckage that the Liberal Party have to try and recover from, and what else it all means looking into the future. But just as we finish up this episode, we haven't spent much time on analysis of the bulldozer of Scott Morrison. How much of this is his personal responsibility as opposed to policies and a party? Annika? Well, uh, so for me, the most memorable moment of the campaign um, was in the debate when the leaders were both asked to say something positive about one another. 
And we all remember that Morrison, you know, took that as an opportunity to have another dig straight at Albo. But then I, the moderator um, picked him up and said, you know, that wasn't the intent of the question. And, and Morrison said, and he said this sort of off microphone, but you could hear it. Oh, I must have misunderstood misheard, or misheard the question. Misheard the question, and I think that sort of characterises his attitude the entire campaign, and that that feeds into the idea of the bulldozer. He had a set agenda. He was not willing to learn from the electorate. He was not willing to learn from any of the signals during the campaign, both from his party, from voters, and from and from polls as well, and just bulldozed his bulldozed his way to uh, captain's picks in defeat. And all of almost all of them. Rejected uh, yeah, it characterises his prime ministership and also the way in which he ran his campaign. And there's a reason, is there not, Carso, why the Labor ads all went back to f- people refusing to shake his hand during the fires, holding a hose. Those... Uh, not my job. Not my job. Those messages were embedded in the, in the voters' minds, not in the last six weeks, That's right. not in the last six months... But the Labor Party started doing that right back at the start of Scott Morrison's prime ministership and just kept that message all the way through. Yeah, in essence, um, it's pointing to a lack of taking responsibility, but it also speaks to a much bigger story about integrity and that the public want their politicians to be accountable. And one of the big uh, issues for voters, but not picked up so much, well, hardly touched on by the coalition, was the need to have a federal ICAC. In fact, they walked away from that at the beginning of the campaign. Ran away. <laughs> yes, they they did. They ran away. Uh, and yet this was a really important issue for the Teals. Uh, it was one of their three yeah. standout policies. Mm-hmm. And it was also something that Labor, a point of difference, they said that they would set up a federal ICAC. Well, very quickly, we're out of time. We will have another episode in just a second, but I just have to torment you all. Who made which prediction at the start of this campaign? I remember... <laughs> Professor of Parties, Annika, and Professor of Polls, Simon. I think you were both predicting a hung parliament, if I'm not mistaken. No, I think the exact phrase I used (laughs) was it's Labor's to lose. Yeah, you (laughs) took the soft option, Annika. Yeah, but I, you know. (laughs) Simon, were you you not predicting a hung parliament? I would would need to be reminded of what my prediction was. Carso, what was yours? I was flirting with a hung parliament but thought it would be an outright win for Labor. By the end of the campaign. At the start, start, I had the same view and I'm still standing by it with 74 (laughs) seats and still counting. I think Labor will get there and will be governing in their own right. Okay. And I said that I thought Labor would have a narrow majority in its own right. And I only thought there would be a couple of new teal independents. I didn't think there would be anything like what we've got. I didn't predict the rise of the Greens, but I Kathy did. Kathy McGowan did, though. She did podcast. on our podcast, yep. and she was right. We all thought she was a bit ambitious and just talking herself and her campaigns up. But what I absolutely am completely comfortable with was describing Scott Morrison as the worst Prime Minister that I can remember since I started noticing politics as a teenager. And I stand by that. And it seems the voters agree. Melbourne University Vice-Chancellor's Fellow John Fain, that's me hosting it. Professors Annika Gallier and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney are our professors of polls and parties. 
Dr. Andrea Carson at La Trobe University is our Professor of Press. Our producers are Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, as well as Michelle Grattan's interviews on the Conversation website, we want to tell you about a new offering from La Trobe University as well, from the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. It's called Climate Hustings, and it features interviews by climate researchers with climate advocates attempting to influence voters to consider the climate crisis at the polls from here and into the future. There's a state election in Victoria later this year and early next year a state election in New South Wales, so the party keeps going. Laurie Zine and Liz Connery are hosts of that, so look out for that from La Trobe University Climate Hustings. That's available from all the places where you enjoy your favourite podcasts. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government in the next I have always believed in miracles. I am humbled by this victory and I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia.